Well, it is a great joy to be gathered again this morning with the saints of God. Um, looks a little bit more like a one of those COVID Sundays that we've had in, in the past couple of years where about half the church is home with some kind of various sickness, but in the Lord's providence, it's kind of the hand we've been dealt today. Um, as we get ready to study the Lord's Word, I'm going to tell you, I've been a little bit under the weather, and so I'm going to do a little bit of editing maybe on the fly to try to shorten us up a little bit, and um, we will still dig into God's Word and see what He has for us, because it's such a privilege each week to gather together to worship. So many places in the world, people can't do this freely and openly, and, and how dare we take that for granted? How dare we use sickness, uh, in my case, use a little bit of illness to say, you know what, we're, we're just going to kind of shorten it down. So we're, we're going to go as long as the Lord will allow, for sure. But what a privilege to gather together with God's people to look at His inspired Word and to look to His Word for strength, for instruction, for hope, for correction, and, and especially as we're going to look at today, for what is our ultimate source of joy. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 1. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1 will be in verses 26 through 56 today. So you, you see we're already in a, in a very long passage of Scripture. But in this, in this story where the angel visits Mary and tells her of the conception and the coming birth of the Messiah through her, we want to look at this and see throughout this story that Jesus is the source of all joy. That's really what jumps off the pages as we will in a moment read this entire text. It's that Jesus is seen throughout this story, and it's Jesus that is the fount of joy. That's the title of the sermon today, Jesus, the fount of joy. Now, you will recall, we, we began looking through the first couple chapters of Luke last week. You will recall Luke, he is a medical doctor by profession, according to Colossians chapter 4, and he is writing a detailed account of the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing what he described as the exact truth of what happened in the days of Jesus. And part of that detailed account is that Luke writes very chronologically, so he just goes day by day by day. Now, he's jumping a few months from what we saw last week to what we see today, but he just takes everything. He told Theophilus, he said, I'm writing these things for you in consecutive order. He's going from that break from the Old Testament when the Lord then comes and tells Zacharias and Elizabeth that they are going to have a son, John the Baptist, the forerunner, and then he moves to the Lord's next action, the coming of the Messiah, the conception of Mary with the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a specific and detail-oriented story of the people and the circumstances around the Messiah. But make no mistake, Jesus is the focus. So it's the events, the people, the happenings around the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, but it's always about Christ. He is the centerpiece of all of Scripture. So with that, let's turn to our text. I'm going to read all 30 or so verses here because I want to set it before you. I want you to see how Christ is throughout this text. And then we'll ask the Lord's help, and then we're going to dive in. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. This is holy, 
inerrant, inspired Scripture. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. And she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I'm a virgin? The angels answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative, Elizabeth, has conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And when, Mary, and when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servants, in remembrance of his mercy, and as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. May he write it upon our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we recognize and we acknowledge that this is a great time, a great hour of need. As we, your people, come to sit under the authority of your word, Lord, we ask that you would 
Send your Holy Spirit and power to move in our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to focus our minds, to put away any distraction that would take our minds away from the glory of Christ that is displayed in your word. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are ready and able and eager to receive and respond to the truth. Lord, the purpose of your truth by the working of your Spirit is to bring us to repentance. The purpose of your Word is to sanctify us as Christ prayed. So Lord, would you be pleased and be glorified to help us in this time. Lord, to take your Word and to to press it deeply within our hearts, to take your word and to cause it to bear fruit. Lord, would you show us Christ? Would you show us his greatness? Would you show us the grace that you reveal to and bestow to us through his work? Would you grant us to have great joy in this glorious Savior? Lord, we are so weak and frail, but you are mighty and able. So we ask that you would accomplish great and mighty things among us, your people, today. May we have hearts that are ready and eager to respond to your truth. We pray that Christ would be lifted up today. We ask this in his name. Amen. So as Luke writes, we remember that his aim is to relate very specific, the exact details of what happened surrounding the birth of Christ. He is showing multiple perspectives that highlight that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And ultimately, this announcement of Christ's birth, the announcement of the birth of Jesus, is important because of who he is. It's important because of what he will do. He is Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Son of God in human form who comes to take upon himself the sin of the world to save his people from their sins. With that in mind, then, we need to take this and dig it into our own hearts. We see here Mary refers to herself as the bond slave of the Lord, and that's a title that we can take on to ourselves through this text, we see that Mary, Mary calls herself a bond slave, so we can say the bond slave sees and serves and submits to the Lord because he sees Jesus as the fount of joy. That's what we see here is that Jesus is the fount of joy. He came humbly, though he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He came, and all those who love his appearing will seek to serve him. We will seek to obey him and submit to him, and we have joy in doing it. Again, that's just what leaps off the pages is this great joy in these people that are looking to the coming of Messiah. You know, that's the great goal when we look to Scripture, is to take its pointers to Christ, the emphases that we see placed on Christ, and to draw them out and see how we might respond to see how we might see the Savior more glorified and to better and more fully submit our lives to Him. 
So this text highlights the greatness of Christ while showing these examples of humility and joy and submission. And a passage like this, uh, as we think about the Christmas season, a passage like this should really help us translate that happy and joyful feeling that we kind of all tend to get in the Christmas season. It should take us from a, a flesh level of that and drive it into a real and genuine and tangible joy because we're looking at the coming of our Savior. So let's turn to the text, and again, we'll, we will make it as far as we can and look in de- at as deeply as these things as we're able today. In verses 26 through 30, we want to see the favor of God. The favor of God. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, and to a virgin who was engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. She kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You have found favor with God. Now, it's interesting to think about this by looking at the circumstances kind of surrounding Mary and her life for just a moment as it kind of points us to the greatness of God, the the power of God in bringing about his Messiah. So we note very first that the angel came to this place, this city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now you say, what is significant about that? Well, their hometown, the, the town in which Jesus kind of grew up, was kind of, in a way, a fulfillment of prophetic teaching. Matthew 2, verse 23 says that it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, what's interesting is that the city of Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament. The prophetic writings that are recorded to be Scripture don't mention this town. But what the Old Testament does tell us is that the Messiah will be lowly and despised. He will be scorned of men. And Nazareth was a town among the Jews that was scorned. It was hated. It was thought lowly of. And so most think that that's really the fulfillment of the prophecy that we see here, that the Messiah comes from a lowly place. John 1, 46, Nathaniel, Philip comes to Nathaniel after Jesus has called him to himself. And Philip says, Nathaniel, let's Let's go to see Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael responds, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That was, that was the thought of the day about this town. It was lowly and hated. And Philip said, Well, yeah, come and see. And he takes him to Christ. He takes him to the Messiah. And so this is where the angel comes to visit Mary. It's her hometown, this lowly and despised city of Nazareth, where where Jesus would call home. Now, seeing that lowly place, then Luke, again, in all the detail he gives us, it's just so neat to, to piece it all together. He reminds us that though born in a lowly place, this man was born of a kingly lineage. Verse 27, the angel came to a virgin who was engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. 
So, so Joseph was of the lineage of David. There's two genealogies of Jesus that we see in the four Gospels. One in Matthew chapter 1, one is in Luke chapter 3, and the, the piecing of them together is another discussion for another day. But what you can ultimately figure out from those is that Joseph was of King David back from the Old Testament. He was of the great king's line, as was Mary. So, so Joseph, kind of as an adopted father to Jesus, gave him this lineage to, to the throne of David. Mary, as one born in that same line, also gave him the heritage of the throne of King David. So he's born in a lowly place. He is humble, rejected, and despised of men, yet he's of the line of the king of Israel, the king that Israel had begged for. You remember that the Lord had many different plans, but they begged for a king to be like the nations around them, and so the Lord gave him a king. They had a great king, the man David, and Jesus is of this same line. Moving to verse 28, it says, so the angel comes in and he says to Mary, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Favored one means woman richly blessed. That's what Mary is, is she not? A woman who is richly blessed and favored of the Lord. She comes from this lowly place. She is of humble means, and yet she's favored of God. And that's how the Lord works. You think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where we see the Lord draw out for us through the Apostle Paul that it's the weak and the base and the foolish things of the world that the Lord uses to shame the wise. The gospel is seen as foolish to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the power to save. It's glorious and great and good news. So Mary, meek and mild, lowly and humble, is favored and blessed by God. And why does the Lord do this? Why does the Lord operate in this way where these things that are often so lowly are built up to be great? It's because He does these so we cannot boast. He does it so our only boast is in Christ. So we know that it's only by His doing that we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only by His doing that we accomplish anything. You can stand and do all kinds of things in your own strength and in your own power and in your own might. And when you do that, you take the credit. Wrongly, but you do. You try to, you want to. But the Lord uses the base, the weak, the foolish things of the world to make much of His name. He builds the gospel up out of this man who was born in a stable, who was born to a mother and an earthly father of humble, really no means, a man who was just a carpenter. He was raised in relative obscurity. He grew up in perfect righteousness. Then he goes to the cross and takes our sin upon his shoulders. He takes that punishment. He bears your curse. The Father pours out this unbridled wrath upon the Son, crushes Him, and then the Son yields the Spirit. He, he goes to the grave. The third day He is raised, and then after seeing many, after many witnesses see Him, He ascends back to glory. And all of this from a worldly perspective starts with Mary. 
this, this woman of Nazareth who is of, uh, of no reputation. She's of no means. She's not even married when she gets pregnant. The Lord does that to glorify His name. And, and so we have to draw out from that that we do not despise lowly things. We do not despise lowly ministries. We do not despise lowly people or positions because those are the things that the Lord often uses to glorify His name. What we need to do is pursue humble faithfulness in our lives. With whatever the Lord has put before you today, you, you pull your boots up and you humbly and faithfully and obediently walk in wherever the Lord has called and placed you today. You cannot make a great name for yourself. The Lord will raise up people at times and, and make them great among men. He even does this to godly people at times, but we can't build that for ourselves. What we can build is a life that is lived in faithfulness, that when you depart to go and be with the Lord, whether you lived in complete obscurity or you preach to thousands every Sunday, either way, you go to be with the Lord, and He says, well done. He says, you are a faithful servant. Come enter into the joy and the rest of your Master. And He does that because you're faithful. He does that because you're humble and obedient. When you think about this, I think one thing that my mind goes to, uh, thinking about in the home, is a mother. Uh, in, in our age, motherhood is just completely overrun. It, it's completely despised by the world. But you moms, do you realize how great a command the Lord puts into you when He entrusts you with these little ones to, to teach and to train and to work the gospel into them? You be faithful in those things. You have, you, you're a disciple maker because you are proclaiming and living the gospel each and every day. Also think about men in the workplace. Women may, may be in the workplace too, so y'all can apply this as well, but especially men in the workplace. Maybe you're at a job that you think is boring and not challenging and doesn't fulfill what you want to do. You go and be faithful. Go and be the best employee you can be. Be encouraging. Have a positive and joyful spirit. And then when calamity strikes, then when something bad happens in the workplace and you respond with a soul that is anchored to Christ, people connect all those dots together. And they don't build you up and think how great that man is. You do those good works and people see them and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. You point others to Christ and to the Lord, and you glorify Him as you walk in the small day-to-day -day things. So the angel has told Mary she is favored, and the Lord is with her. The text goes on that she is very perplexed at the statement. and She's pondering what kind of salutation this is. To be perplexed speaks of being agitated or disturbed or troubled. You can imagine at this stage that she is very confused. She doesn't know really what's going on. And so the angel picks up. Verse 30 says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You have found favor with God. Now, 
back up just for a second, and, and we'll look at that idea of favor with God and what it means. But this is really something that can run so counter to the Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic doctrine of our day, where they want to make much of Mary as the mother of Jesus. What we really see is that the Lord has found favor with her, not because of anything she's done, because otherwise Luke would tell us. Remember that Luke is one of these people who writes with such detail that if there were something good in Mary that we would need to know, he would tell us. But the favor of God was not because she merited it or earned it in some way. It's because the Lord looked upon her and she was justified and she was righteous in the sight of God because of this son that she would bring into the world because he was her Messiah, her Savior, her hope, and her life was in him. To be favored here is the Greek word charis. Uh, it's often translated grace, which really kind of picks up on that idea. The, the Lord has been gracious to her. It is an unmerited favor. One dictionary talked about this term and said that it indicates favor on the part of the giver and thankfulness on the part of the receiver. So when you see grace in the Scriptures, that's, that's one kind of dot that we need to always be careful to connect. Favor on the part of the giver and a thankful heart on the part of the receiver. So the angel says, do not fear. Receive this grace of God with a thankful heart. So we can draw out from there. Think, think about Job. Job chapter 2, Job says to his wife, as she is not um, pleased with the trial that has been brought upon them, Job says to her, Job 2 verse 10, he says, Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? It's the Lord who gives favor. It's the Lord who gives grace. It's the Lord who brings blessing. And what Scripture teaches us is that if we receive that from the Lord, we must also receive His providential hand when it's adversity, when it's conflict, when it's trial, when it's difficulty, because nothing comes to us that doesn't pass through the hands of God. When we think about the grace of God in Christ, we must have that, that reception in our heart to understand that just as He gives good things, so also will he allow and even cause some of the difficult things to come to our lives because it's when we pass through the fires that he is with us. It's when we are being overwhelmed by the floods of life that he holds us and he lifts us up and sometimes it's just enough to get one breath. Do you understand that? Sometimes you're only lifted out of the flood long enough to get a breath and then you're plunged right back into it. But it's the Lord that holds you. It's the Lord that keeps you. Shall we receive grace? Shall we receive blessing from His hand, but not receive adversity? So that's the favor of God. Then moving forward, verses kind of 31 through 38, we can look at the greatness of Jesus. And here kind of comes this great focal point of this text, the greatness of Jesus. Look at verse 31 and a, and a few more after that. The angel continues, And behold, you will conceive in your womb 
and you will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. We could stop there and just glory in that, but continue reading. Mary then says to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answers, and he says to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So again, the greatness of Jesus. You imagine the shock here. The angel comes and says, you will conceive a son. Mary says, I'm not even married. I'm still a virgin. How will that happen? The angel goes on to explain to her. But, but think about this. He says, you will have a son, and you will name him Jesus. We don't, that's not the only place we see this kind of statement. In uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the, an angel of the Lord is speaking to Joseph and telling him again about Jesus, about this baby that is conceived in his future wife. Matthew 1, verse 21, the angel tells Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, as you may know, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. The Lord saves. So it's almost redundant when the angel tells Joseph, you shall call him Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. You shall call him the Lord of salvation and he will accomplish salvation for his people. And realize that Mary also knew the meaning of this name. So, so she's starting to kind of piece all of this together when the angel tells her, you shall name him Jesus, she, she knew it was a very common name in that day. So she knew what this probably started to mean. That this was the Messiah. That he will come and save his people from their sins. And when we think about the greatness of Jesus, where else do we go? Where else do we go but this work of redemption? You know, there's many places in Scripture we could turn and look. Colossians chapter 1 is, is one of those places. And there's a lot that we could see in Colossians 1, but just focus in on a few verses. Verse 19, all the way down through verse 22. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, For it is the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. On all, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So when you think about Jesus, when you think about the greatness of the Savior, when you think about this work that he is accomplishing salvation, this is where you look. This is where your mind goes that this is the one who took your sin upon himself. 
There was a certificate of debt against you, and it was nailed to Jesus at the cross. When he bled and suffered and died, that was just a picture. That was just something to show us a little idea of what was being accomplished as the Father was pouring out wrath upon the Son. And the Father poured out that wrath because you were an enemy. Because you were waging war against the Holy One. And you had earned wrath for all eternity. And that was poured out on Christ at the cross. And so you are no longer an enemy if you are in Christ, but you are reconciled. You are made to be a friend. You are counted righteous and adopted by God to be one of His children, to share in the glorious inheritance of Christ for all eternity. This is the greatness of Jesus. This is the reason that Jesus is the fount of all joy, because nothing can take that away. Nothing can remove that. Nothing can pluck you out of His hand or the Father's hand. When you are in Christ, you are sealed for eternity. That is the fount of joy for every believer. That you have a hope. and does not disappoint. It does not fade away. Verse 32, Luke continues. The angel speaking. He will be great. And He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Let me tell you, I think it falls pitifully short in some ways to say that Jesus is great. It's not that the description is wrong. It's that our language and our minds cannot comprehend the greatness of of Christ, the greatness of our Savior. It'd be like if we were standing at the base of Mount Everest and we looked up and I said, man, that's a tall mountain. Is it true? Yeah. But does it, does it get the point? Does it really paint the picture of what you're looking at, the majesty and the glory and the splendor? No, it, it falls so short. But that's what Jesus is described as. It says that he is Great, the text says, that he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. So he will one day reign as a king. He will reign, the text says, over the house of Jacob forever. And to this kingdom there will be no end. So he's not like a king. He's not like a president. He's not like a a dictator in our day that may live on for 70, 80, 100 years, and then he dies and his reign is over. No, it's an eternal throne that Jesus took up when he returned to glory after accomplishing our redemption. To his kingdom there will be no end. And you, dear one, if you are in Christ, if you are one of his saints, you are a part of that kingdom. You inherit that kingdom alongside your Messiah, Jesus is the fount of joy. It's the fount of hope. He's what presses us on. Think about Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. Yet then he laid aside 
his deity. He took on the form of a bondservant. He learned obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then at that point, what happens? After he died on the cross and was raised from the dead, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That is every knee in heaven and on earth and under earth. And at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the King. That is the one that we serve. He is the one who holds you in His hands. Let me say again, Jesus is the fount of joy. Think about Revelation chapter 5, the, one of the most glorious scenes depicted in all of Scripture. Thousands of thousands cry out, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All those ands just keep tying these things on. It's like they're just stacking one on top of another. They're, they're individual items, and they just stack and stack and stack and stack because Christ is worthy, because He accomplished redemption. He perfectly fulfilled His Father's plan. Friends, let me remind you that we who make up the church, we who are in Christ Jesus as His bride, we are the church, we are His bride, and we must bow and submit to Him in all things. That's one of the, one of the great things that we see in our salvation is that we are inheritors with Christ, yet we bow and submit to Him as our Savior and our King and our Redeemer. The text continues, Mary says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answers, and he says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now you notice here, what's amazing, I think one of the things that's amazing is what's not said here. Mary doesn't question anything about the greatness of the Messiah. The angel has already laid out how glorious this child that is going to be within her is going to be. She doesn't question that. She believes. She has faith. She just asks, how is the Lord going to accomplish this? How can this be? Because physically it's really not possible. And that leads us to the, really one of the greatest points of all of Scripture. One of, one of the most important Points. Uh, there's, there's a few things that you can't take away and still have the gospel, and this is one of them. The virgin birth, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. The angel describes it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So, so for this reason, that Jesus is called Holy it's for this reason that he is the Son of God, because he was born to a virgin, and, and he was conceived by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. It was God creating in this woman his Son to, to grow and to be born, and then to grow up, to be perfect, to go to that cross, 
and to complete the work of redemption. If Jesus, if you, if you just consider for a moment, if Jesus had been the physical son of Mary and Joseph, he would not have been the Messiah. He could not have been called holy. He would not have been the Son of God because he would have inherited the sin nature that every single one of us inherits through Adam's fall all the way back at creation. But that was not Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is able to be called holy. And he is able to save his people from their sins. Romans chapter 5, verse 15 says, For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Friends, that's the wonder of Christmas. That's why we as God's people celebrate, because by the one man we all fell. By Adam, we all were plunged into guilt and sin and wrath forever and ever. But by the grace of God and the gift of the one man, Jesus Christ, many are counted righteous. Think about all the, and there are examples that I would use, but I'll be careful not to, just in case some of you don't practice the Christmas season as we do in our home, you think about all the trivial things that people do around Christmas. And I'm not just talking about the big one. There's several other ones that, that people practice that just treat the coming of the Messiah as though it's really nothing. When you go home, sure, enjoy Christmas with your children. Let, let, them, let them enjoy all the things that, that Christmas brings, the lights and the trees and the gifts and all of that. But tell them about this Messiah. Tell them that we celebrate not a baby that's born in a stable, but a king that has come to ransom them from their sins. That is why we celebrate. And we must make sure that our children understand that that's why we celebrate. Because we have a Savior. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip down to verse 39, um, well, verse 38 for just a moment. Mary says, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Do you see the humility there? Mary just holds her life with an open hand. She realizes that she is a servant. She is a slave of the Most High. There, there's nothing in life that she holds on to that she declares as her own. She says, I'm your slave, Lord. Do with me as you please. Think about the favor of God. These are the ones whom God favors. Those who are humble and lowly of heart. Because those are the ones who bring the Lord the most glory. So down at verse 39 and down through 45, we also see the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you kind of see a little bit of a Trinitarian flow here. The, the favor of God, the favor of the Father, the greatness of Jesus, and the joy of the Holy Spirit. It says, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah. She entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. 
And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She cried out with a loud voice and she said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how's it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken by the Lord. Now, not going to take time to go into all of that right now, but what we ought to pull out of that is that spiritually minded people respond to situations in a spiritual way. Think about this. So, so last time we saw that Zacharias and Elizabeth were filled with the Spirit of God. They had been counted righteous. They were made new already in Christ, though he was yet even born. We saw that John was indwelled by the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And so what you see is that God's people, people who have the Holy Spirit in them, respond to situations in this spiritual way. They are spiritually minded. Okay, so it's not just that we go about life and things just happen by chance and we kind of turn on the seat of our pants and determine how to respond. Everything flows from God's hand. And really, it starts with this view of God's providence, that He's over all and in all and through all, and that nothing comes to pass except for that which He allows and causes to come to pass. And so everything is received with a spiritual mind. We see that the Spirit filled Elizabeth in a special way. Again, she was already full of the Spirit, but, it, but He came to her in a new way. Calvin says that this means that she was suddenly endued with the gift of prophecy to an unusual extent, because the gifts of the Spirit had not been lacking in her, but their power appeared in a more abundant and extraordinary way. What did the Spirit produce in her? We could all sum it up in one word, joy. Joy. She received the Spirit, and, and then the, Calvin makes that note that it was in the way of prophecy. Prophecy, not a predictor of the future, but a declaration of revealed truth. That's really what prophecy is to us today, as we are cessationist. Prophecy is the declaration of revealed truth, and that's what Elizabeth does. Blessed are you, Mary, blessed and favored of God. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, for it is the Messiah. She says, how can it be that the mother of my Lord has come to me? She already recognizes and acknowledges that this is the Savior. She declares the truth. And that's what spiritually minded people do. They declare the revealed truth of God. And they do it with humility. And they do it with joy. So this is really the two things that we need to seek to imitate. This extraordinary faith and this exuberant joy. You, you see that she says, When you came, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. It, it was a tangible joy. There was a rejoicing in John the Baptist because he knew there sat in the, in the same room with him the one for whom he would be the forerunner. And he was filled with joy and wonder and praise. 
and joy of seeing Christ and knowing Him and knowing the work of redemption that He would accomplish. So may the Lord tune our hearts to that truth. May the Lord cause us to spring and to well up with joy at the coming of the Messiah. Now just briefly, 46 through 56, this song of Mary really could be a separate sermon of its own, but let me just piece it in here because this is a Mary, Mary's immediate response, right? This is how she immediately responds in this situation. And so here what you can see is the response of the godly. So the favor of God, the greatness of Jesus, the joy of the Holy Spirit, and the response of the godly. Mary says, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has regarded the humble estate of His bond slave. You see how she immediately responds. That's what I really want to grab onto and hold onto. There is, there's no basking in that statement from Elizabeth. Mary immediately says, My soul exalts the Lord. Spiritual people respond in spiritual ways. She exalted the Lord. She says, My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Humility then produces praise. Humility produces praise for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave and for behold from this time on all generations she says will count me blessed what state does the lord regard except for this lowly state this humility this lowliness of mind scripture tells us that the lord opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble Really, Scripture is clear and emphatically repetitive about that. In this command to humility, we see repeated several times that the Lord hates a prideful, arrogant heart, and He gives grace to, and He exalts the humble. This humility comes, you think about humility and joy and praise all coming together, this comes when you see the sinfulness of your sin, comes when you see the greatness of Jesus and you see his glorious grace to you. It's really what the Puritans would teach us, right? That, that it's this affection that you have because you see the depth of your sin. You see how black and dirty and wicked it is. And you see that against the backdrop of the glory and the beauty and the greatness of Christ and you're undone. It's how Isaiah responded, right? He, he saw the glory and the holiness of God. And he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm from a people of unclean lips. I'm ruined. So you see the sinfulness of sin. Again, I'm, I'm borrowing, stealing, paraphrasing that from the Puritans. The sinfulness of sin, the greatness of Jesus, and the glory and the greatness of grace. All that does is cut you to your knees. How would you stand up in arrogance when you see the ugliness of the sin that sent the Messiah to the cross? 
how would you stand and shake a fist at God when He sends adversity your way, when you know that your sin sent the ultimate adversity to the Messiah? It was your sin that caused Him to be pierced. It caused the Father to have to pierce the Son. How do you respond to adversity in any way but to humbly submit and to see Christ as the fount of all joy? We continue, could continue on looking at Mary's song. She ultimately gets to this point in verse 54. She says that the Lord has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. The Lord provided for his people. He gave them that temporal, physical help. But Mary exalted at this point because the temporal and physical help was over. Because the eternal help was on the scene. The eternal help was set to arrive in the person of Jesus Christ and the cross that he would bear and the victorious resurrection that he would accomplish. The Lord's provision and the Lord's mercy was at hand. Jesus was coming to save his people from their sins. So to draw to a conclusion... This ought to be the focus of our hearts and our minds in the Christmas season. To see that Jesus has come as the Son of God to be the Savior of His people. With Christ's redemption as our focus, we have but this kind of one set of responses. They all work up together, but there are many facets to this response. And it's joy and humility and exaltation and thanksgiving gratitude, and praise. That is what we do when we see the glory of Christ in His incarnation, knowing that that was not His end. He didn't come just to be a baby. He came to be a Savior. In some ways, I feel like this has been repeated the last number of weeks, and in a way, that's very much on purpose, because that's what we need to be reminded of in this time, the joy and the gratitude that we must have for Christ. What more could we strive after in this specific season than to respond with joy and praise to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? These heart positions, friend, uh, we'll, we'll kind of start wrapping up here. These heart positions of joy and humility and thanksgiving are your greatest remedy to sin. If you want to fight sin, if you want to resist temptation, you must walk in this heart and this mind that sees Jesus as the great fount of all joy, that sees him as the Savior, the risen and reigning one. If that's not the position of your heart, you have no joy. You, you have no humility. You have no thanksgiving because you don't know the Savior. But come to Him. Rest in Him. Find life in Him. The acknowledgement of Christ as our true and only source of joy, the acknowledgement of Christ as the fount of joy, is your only hope in times of trial. When you see that this life is not your end, this life is not your home. When you walk through seasons of long-term suffering, 
If you don't have a fount of joy, I don't know how you push on. But when you're being crushed, when you're being ground to dust, you can remember and recall to mind that Christ gives joy. Christ gives grace. Your eternal hope is secure. This is how the Lord transfers our minds from temporal pleasure to eternal joy by fixing our eyes on Christ. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us and fix our eyes on Jesus. So if you say Jesus is the fount of your joy, this is what it does. You lay aside sin, you resist temptation, you have a hope to which you cling, and a glorious Savior to whom you look. Are you looking to the Savior? Is Christ the fountain of your joy? If He's not, I plead with you to turn to Him, to run to Him, to repent of your sin and find life and hope in Christ Because he is a good and gracious and compassionate Savior. Come to Christ and drink living waters. Come to him who is mighty, for he has done a great thing. He's taken on flesh and conquered death's sting. Holy is his name. I ask um, if you will stand with me. I want to close with prayer. We'll give a couple announcements and then we will be dismissed. So let's pray. Lord God, you are great, greatly to be praised. I ask that you would write your word upon our hearts. Lord, would you show us that Christ is indeed the fount of all joy? Would you cause us to see the sinfulness of our sin? glory of Christ and the greatness of grace. Which cause us to understand, though, while we see that great grace, that it's our sin that caused him to be nailed to the tree. It was our sin that caused your wrath, Father, to be poured out upon your beloved Son. Lord, would you grant us to see that and, and let that transform us, turn our affections from things of this world to heavenly and glorious and eternal things. Would you grant us to see our Savior and our Messiah and to run to Him, to look to Him, to cling to Him, to lay aside anything that holds us back from Him and to cause us to walk and to live in a way that brings honor and glory to His great name, to live in a way that honors His work, that follows his example, and proclaims his power. Lord, we ask that you would receive all glory and honor today among us, and ask that you would write your word upon our hearts, and that you would do so for the sake of your glory. And ask this in Christ's name. Amen.